in Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4 and verse 17 through verse 24. We've been coming through the book of Ephesians expositionally, and uh, we're here in chapter 4, picking up in verse 17. And the title of the message is very plain, as we'll see from our text. It's a new way of life, a new way of life. And so let's read this passage together, and then we will bring out of it what God has given to us, and we pray that He would minister to our hearts as He sees fit. We would be drawn closer to Him and uh, be cultivated in our Christian life. And maybe that there's one lost here today, you would see your need of Christ, and you'd come to Him by faith. Let's look at verse 17 of Ephesians 4. Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. A new way of life is so plainly seen here in this text. Now, there are many in this world who sometimes try to make an attempt to change their life for the better. Any of us ever heard the term of turning over a new leaf? That's a a common one in our world, our culture. And so this phrase, turning over a new leaf, is uh, what's meant by that is that they're seeking to start fresh or get on a new path or make some kind of a change. Uh, Perhaps it's an attempt to start a new habit or break an old habit. It could be an attempt to be a better husband and wife or father or mother. It could be to break an addiction or maybe help other people with something. Many attempts are made to change various aspects of a person's life. And some of those attempts may be successful in an earthly sense. But when it comes to true change in a person's life, a change that is supernatural, a change that truly transforms us inside and out, that kind of a change cannot come and does not come by our own power. That kind of change comes only from the person who has all power, and that is Jesus Christ. You see, a true new way, a truly new way of life requires an inward transformation that in turn affects in an outward application. It manifests itself outwardly. And this is what the apostle is writing about to the Ephesians. He has already reminded them through this great book of the great change that grace brought to them. How marvelous is Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 1 and chapter 3. 
just just include it all, right? But just just to give you the broad scope, he he reminds them how God in his 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 overall sovereign plan of redemption orchestrated all these things to bring about their salvation. He reminds them that they were dead in their sin, but now they've been made alive in Christ. They were depraved in their sin, but now that they have been delivered by the Savior. And so the first half of the book was very doctrinal in what Christ has done and who they are in Him. But now as we come to chapter 4, he's plunged into the practical, the, the life of the Christian that is to be lived out. He pointed out the union that all believers have in Christ the gifts that Christ has given to His church, and the goal of the Christian growing up into a mature, faithful, and fruitful believer. And now He's calling on them to a specific way of living that flows from the regeneration that Christ produced in, our heart, in their hearts. Now understand that as we look at this text, Christian, this is for you today. This is for me today. It is for us It is for us, because if you as a Christian, if you have truly been born again, a change has taken place in your heart. And if that change has taken place in your heart, that change affects the life in which you live in this world. We're called upon to live in a manner that reflects the conversion that we have in Christ. So notice in our notes here this morning a couple points I want to bring to your attention that the Apostle Paul brings to their attention and us. Notice number one, I want you to see the corruption of the old life. The corruption of the old life. Now now Paul already touched on this in in the manner of their position outside of Christ. Ephesians 2, uh, he told them who they were before Christ. They were dead in sin. They followed the course of this world and the path of Satan and followed their sinful lust. And now he brings that again in another manner by pointing out that they are not to live in that way, which is also the way that the rest of the culture and world, world around them lives. So what do we learn about the old life? Well, the first thing I want to point out to you is that the old life was depraved in its nature. It was depraved in its nature. It was fallen and sinful in its nature. We begin in verse 17, and Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. Now Paul's here for just a moment. And note the urgency and authority behind Paul's words. The word testify here is not just, well, I'm just giving a testimony or speaking something, but rather this is a word that has strong weight behind it. The Greek term here means to urge something as a matter of great importance. So Paul's instructions here, what he's getting ready to say, it is not just some some flippant thing uh, that he's just spouting off. This is something that is urgent and essential for the Christian life. It's not an optional thing. It's an essential thing. See, all that we read here must be taken to heart and applied to our lives because these are the words of the living God. This is not... Chicken noodle soup for the soul. It's not Reader's Digest. It's not some devotional book you picked up. This is the words of the living God. And they come to the very heart of His people. 
Paul indicates the words he's about to say. They are in the Lord. And so Paul can, Paul's words concerning uh, the Ephesians, they flow from his own authority as an apostle of the Lord, but also from his own experience in personal communion with the Lord. He is living and knows the life that this is, he's called to, called to be. And he's communicating that to the Ephesians. So Paul is communicating to them this, and he urges them, notice this, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. It's calling on them. Do not walk as the Gentiles do. Now, what does Paul mean by this? Aren't the Ephesians Gentiles? Well, ethnically, yes, they were. They were predominantly Gentiles, as we read in chapter 2, as Paul makes this, this clear doctrinal truth that even though you're Gentiles in the flesh, you are one people in Christ. Jew and Gentile, the distinction is no more. They are the household of God, the temple of the living God. So what then does Paul mean by labeling the Gentiles as a people not to live like? Paul does not use Gentiles here with regard to ethnicity per se, but rather their morality the way in which they live their life. Now, you could rightly use the word pagans or the godless. Do not live as the godless do. Do not live as the pagans do. Paul references them in this fashion while speaking to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, he says to them, he's instructing them to live not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, and here's the key description, who do not know God. Do not know God. Those who do not know God. So Gentiles here, understand, this word Gentiles, it represents all the ungodly, all the unregenerate, all the unconverted, all of the pagans and heathen around us in our world and in our culture. He's calling on them as Christians, don't live like them. If we were to say it today, we would say don't live like the godless world and culture around us. And as you look at our culture around us, would you not say that it is indeed godless? It is indeed pagan? It is. Don't live like those who don't know Christ. You know, there are so many in our world that long to have and be what the culture has promoted uh, to be the happy and good life. People look at their uh, favorite pop stars or musicians or, 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 or professional athletes or actors, and they look at their life and they go, oh, they've just got it made. They've got the best life. What they don't realize is that all of those lives are lives of sin. And though they may appear happy outwardly, they are unsatisfied and they are not living a life that is truly worth living. You see, this is about conduct and lifestyle that the fallen world around us lives in. They live in a lifestyle that never truly satisfies the soul. Never satisfies the soul. Notice that this, this conduct and lifestyle is given with the concept of walking. We've already touched on this, haven't we? In this chapter, verse 1, what did Paul say? He told them positively to walk in a manner... Worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk in a way that a called Christian should walk. 
You've been called out of the world, out of darkness. This is the way in which you should walk. So he's calling them to walk in that way. So that was a positive command, and they're walking. But now he gives them a negative part of this command and how not to walk. You see, how we walk is how we live. And this includes both the inward thoughts of our mind and heart as well as the outward actions and things we do. Christian, all of us walk in some way or another. We all think in a certain way. We all talk in a certain way. We all do things in a certain way in our life. And so what exactly does Paul say of these Gentiles, this godless uh, people in the world around them? Notice what he says of them. He says, firstly, that they walk, how? In the futility of their minds. Now, this is so key for us to understand because it ties in to the positive aspect of how we are to walk later in the text. The mind is central to all of life. Why did you come to church today? Because in your mind, you decided to come, right? You thought it. Why did you, you eat what you ate for breakfast? Why are you going to do what you do later? Because you're thinking it, right? You're thinking it, and you're thinking. What's your, mind, your mind affects everything about your life. All that we do and say flows from what we believe and think. And here's what Paul says of the minds of these Gentiles. They are full of futility. Now, the word futility here means a state of being without use or value. It could also be translated as emptiness or purposelessness or vanity. This is the course of the unregenerate mind. The unregenerate person plans and resolves everything on the basis of his own thinking. A person with this mind lives in this world without regard or thinking of what is truly valuable and what really matters. Namely, the spiritual and the eternal. How many people live their life going day to day thinking life is all about just Working their job, getting to retirement, having a nice retirement, dying, and then that's it. No really regard for what comes after. No real regard for the Lord or, or, or what uh, our purpose is in this world. And so understand that, that in the end, what do this present world and all its pleasures, all that we could accomplish, all that we could possess, what does it all amount to? It is futility and vanity. If you don't believe me, go read the book of Ecclesiastes. You're going to find that word repeated over and over. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, saith the preacher. 1 John 2, 7, the apostle wrote, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, all that a person can have and enjoy in this world, it is empty without the Lord. The Lord is what gives all of life meaning and purpose. It's all about Him. We're created for His glory and pleasure. It is God that we're to live for. And yet the Gentile mind, the godless mind, does not live in that manner. Now, why do the Gentiles, the godless of this world, walk in such a manner and have such a futile mind? Well, why, look, 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 look with me at verse 18 as you come on down to the text. What does Paul say of them? He says they are darkened in their understanding. I mean, when we consider the world, we think of our life, 
you, you look at creation, and it, it's, it's an unmistakable testimony of the glorious creator who made it. Your own physical body is a testimony of an of a infinite designer who made it. And we think of the gospel and, and, and what the message of the gospel is as, as Jesus has died on the cross and the message to the world is repent and believe the gospel. Why? So that you may have eternal life. We think about this message. We think about all that God is, the beauty, the wonder. Why does not every man in this world run to their creator? Why do they not run to Jesus? This is why. He says they are darkened in their understanding. You see, natural man, unsaved man, assumes that he has right understanding and thinking even about spiritual things and this world. Men think that they are wise and know what they need or what the world needs to make things better for themselves. But just because one thinks they understand does not mean that they actually understand. For example, the Jews crucified their Messiah. Why did they do that? Because in their understanding, they thought this is the right thing to do. Jesus is a problem for us. So what do they do with their darkened understanding? They crucify their own Messiah, the Savior. We see it in the gospel. We see it in our own world and nation. Our own national leaders think that enabling or catering to the LGBTQ community is uh, is what's good for our nation. The Senate passing the Respect for Marriage Act, which is an absolute atrocity to the Word of God, and may have consequences on local churches. They think that they are bettering our nation. Why do they think that? Their understanding is darkened. They're wrong. Natural men think that they don't either need God, or they can create their own God, or work their way to the true God. Why do they think that way? They're darkened understanding. They are wrong. Sinners think they can live a life of drunken debauchery and be just fine. They are wrong. The world around us is wrong in its understanding. They are darkened in their understanding. And so what Paul is describing here, understand, he is describing the depravity of mankind. All men are darkened in their understanding. They do not see clearly and cannot see clearly by their own power, especially in regard to the spiritual truth that they need. What is actually true and righteous. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the Apostle Pilate Paul writes concerning this issue. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Why else would the gospel be foolishness to the unbeliever? See, the unbeliever looks in here at me preaching and says, what a foolish thing that is. That guy's standing behind a pulpit preaching about a guy who was crucified 2,000 years ago. They look at that as foolish. Why is that? Darkened understanding. Darkened minds. Notice also, as Paul comes through this text, he says they are alienated from the life of God. Now, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because Paul just used that same language to describe who the Ephesians were in chapter 2. 
You remember what he says. He's the same description. They says of them in chapter 2 and verse 12 that they were alienated from God. They were separated from Him, estranged from Him. You understand that all unsaved people, they are separated from God. They don't have any connection to God. Even though they might think they do, they don't have it. Because the only connection to God is through Christ. You see... We are naturally, in our unsaved state, alienated from Him for a very good reason. And that reason is because God is infinitely holy in His nature and man is exceedingly sinful in His nature. And the two cannot commune together. They can't. The only way that man can be reunited with God is if they are supernaturally changed from their sinful condition and forgiven through Christ. You'll notice that they are alienated from the life of God. The life of God, not necessarily just the physical life. We have physical life. They're alienated from the life of God, spiritual life. What did Paul say to the Ephesians in chapter 2 and verse 1? You were dead in sins. And as a result of that, they were enemies of God in their minds. Colossians 1.21, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. And Paul continues to build upon this depraved nature, giving us further reason for their conduct. He says, because of their ignorance that is in them. So there's another aspect. There's an ignorance in the godless world. What does it mean to be ignorant of something? It, it means to lack, it has, it, this word here means lack of information that may result in reprehensible conduct. You see, the lack of truth leads to bad thinking and bad living. Because all that we believe and live by is according to right knowledge. Where is right knowledge found? It's found in the word of the living God. What is the only truth that can set the sinner free from his depraved bondage? It is the truth of Christ. Because man's sinfulness, understand, it flows out of his ignorant and hostile mind that loves sin and hates God. And so therefore, if he is to be changed... His mind must be transformed, which happens with conversion. Not only is ignorance the problem for the unregenerate person, it's not just ignorance because, understand, there are many unbelievers who have been given the truth. They've been given it countless times. They've heard the gospel over and over again, and yet they continue in unbelief and an evil lifestyle. Why is that? Look at what Paul says next. Paul says it's due to their Hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. Now, the word hardness here, it can be rendered dullness, insensibility, or obstinacy. It carries the idea of being rock hard. It was used by physicians to describe the calcification that forms around broken bones and becomes harder than bone itself. That's the reality of the human heart. Outside of Christ, his heart is naturally obstinate to God and his truth. And as the sinner follows his sinful course, he only hardens himself further in his sin. John Gill commenting on this says, There is a natural hardness of the heart. The heart is naturally stony, and so it remains till grace takes away the stony heart and gives a heart of flesh. It is insensible and inflexible and not susceptible of any 
of any impression. And there is a voluntary hardness of it. Men willingly harden themselves against the Lord and make their hearts like an adamant stone. All sin is of a hardening nature. I have to agree with his words. Now, we consider all that Paul's saying here. Have you ever wondered as you look around the world and wonder why do they think the way they think and why do they act the way they act? Why do some people do certain things? The answer is right here. Right here. All of what Paul has described as the Gentiles, those who are unconverted, compounds together as the reason for how they live. Their nature is fallen in sin. Sin has affected their whole being, their mind, their emotions, their soul, their very will. So we see the old life was depraved in its nature, but that leads to letter B. This is naturally what outflows from it. The old life was depraved in its behavior. Its behavior. Now notice that Paul continues the truth of these unconverted people, saying don't live like them. And here's what we find in verse 19. He says they have become callous. Callous. The word for callous here, it's similar to the word for hardness, but it's a different Greek term. It has the definition in the lexicon of meaning to be so inured that one is not bothered by the implications of what one is doing. In other words, you don't fear the consequences of what you're about to do. You're so far uh, into this spiral of sin that you're going to do some outrageously wicked things that even the common man with a common conscience does not do. We, we, I just heard this week of a little seven-year-old girl in Texas. You already saw this on the news. Abducted by a FedEx driver. Took her away and just killed her. We, we, we look at things that we hear like that and we think, how can someone be so vile and sick? How can someone do such a thing? Scripture is answering that question this morning. Men are vile. They are hard. And understand that certain men, some men, go further deeper into sin, callousing their heart to which they fear no consequence. They fear nothing as to what might happen as a result of their actions. So we see that they become callous. The KJV renders this of, as past feeling or without feeling. Any of us ever had a callous before? We all have, right? There was one time in my younger years... I was going to make it a point to try to learn guitar, okay? Well, the, picked up a guitar and began trying to play that thing. I had no skill whatsoever. But not only that, but the more I used my fingers on those strings, I thought, man, this hurts because you've got to put pressure down. You've got you to hold the right note and all of this stuff. And I, and I started talking to my friends like, Why, how do you do that and it not hurt so, so bad on your fingers? It's like, well, you've got to get calluses on your fingers, you got to get calluses in your fingers. And I went and touched his fingers, and they were, like, kind of hard, right? What happens with a callus? It's rubbed over and rubbed over and rubbed over to where you don't have as much feeling there, right? You might have a callus somewhere else like on your toe or your, sh- in your, or your foot or, or some other way that's been rubbed up against, rubbed up against where it was painful at first and painful for a time, but eventually it calluses over and you just don't feel it anymore. And understand that that Paul here, he's talking not about a physical callous, but a callous heart and mind to truth and to righteousness. This is the natural progression as one continues further down the spiral of sin. 
What once pricked the conscience no longer does. And Paul wrote to Timothy of people who would have this kind of conscience in 1 Timothy 4, 2. Speaking of these people through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now this happens among the lost world very much so. I want you to understand that though men become callous, not all men are as sinful as they possibly could be. Total depravity does not mean that we're as sinful as we possibly could be. It means our whole being is affected by sin. We can do nothing to remedy that. But there are certain men that plunge deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. And so understand that every sinner can grow callous to certain sins. And Christian, even in your life, you must be on guard against that. You let sin linger around, you're going to think it's not that big a deal anymore. You can callous your mind to it. So with the sinner being all that Paul describes here, leading to a callous heart and mind, what should we expect from such a thing? Here's what we expect and see. A lifestyle of sinful indulgence. The mind of the Gentiles, those without Christ, is futile, and this is evidenced by their behavior. How we think always affects how we behave. Notice that Paul says they have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, we notice that Paul says that they have given themselves up to these things. In other places, Scripture speaks of God giving sinners up to sinful things. Well, which is it? The answer is yes. They're simply different wordings of the same truth that happens. The Lord gives over the sinner who profusely rebels against him in their own lust. Their being given over is due to their own digression into further hardening of their heart in sin. This reveals also to us that the Lord has a hand of restraint on the evil of men. That if he was to remove his hand of restraint, there's no telling what we would see in this world. See, some men, while they do not seek after God, they still have the moral conscience that God planted within them. Every man has a conscience of the basic fundamental of what right and wrong is. But many are callous in their conscience and are given up to their own evil lusts. We read this in Romans chapter 1 as one example. I won't read the whole text. You read Romans 1, 18 through the end of the chapter, that'll convey the whole message here. But verse, verse 28 through 32, just for a moment, you'll see this. Notice, it, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so there's a knowledge of God here, but they're rejecting it. Rejecting it. God gave them up. To a debased what? Mind. To do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That is quite a list, friend. And notice verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We see that evidence in our culture all around us. Now we see several things given that or the sinner is given over to in Romans 1. Paul gives a summary of that, given up to sensuality. What is this sensuality? It's a lack of self-constraint, which involves one 
in conduct that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable. This is a person who cares nothing about what anyone else thinks, especially what God thinks. They live in such a manner that they only gratify the desires of their depraved mind. This word has special notation in the realm of the sexual sins. Paul goes on to say, they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Greed and impurity go hand in hand. You know why? The pursuit to practice impurity stems from the selfish greed of the heart. I want to enjoy the impurity because it makes me feel good. And Paul says it's every kind of impurity. They're willing to do whatever they can to satisfy their sinful desires. And this applies to all sinners in some measure. This is the behavior, the way of life for the unconverted sinner. The old life was depraved in its nature. It was depraved in its behavior. And this is whom the Ephesians used to be, but it's also what the culture around them continues to be. So should the professing Christian still live and act in such a way? As Paul says in Romans, God forbid. God forbid. That brings us to number two this morning. Notice with me the cause of a changed life. The cause of a changed life. Now, I'll point out two brief things here about a true Christian. A true Christian has known Jesus personally. Now understand, just because you're raised in church does not make you a true Christian. Just because your grandmother and grandfather were Christians does not make you a Christian. Just because your parents were Christians does not make you a Christian. A true Christian personally, individually, knows Jesus in their own heart. And this is what Paul transitions in. The flow from the old life being Gentile and pagan, to what brought them to a new life, both inwardly and externally. Verse 20, notice that Paul says, but that, that way of living, that is not the way you learned Christ. Now what is meant by this wording here? Some commentaries differ because it's somewhat, uh, somewhat not clear. But I think we can gather the, the gist of what's being said. What's meant I, by the wording of having learned Christ? How do we learn a person? When it comes to subjects, we can learn them, right? We can learn math and science and history. When it comes to people, we typically learn about them, right? But here's the thing. When we become a Christian, we have not just learned about Christ. We have actually come to know Him in a personal, intimate way. The word learned here can mean to gain knowledge or skill by instruction, as in the process of learning a truth. That would imply growing. But it can also mean to make the acquaintance of something, as in coming to know as a one-time act. And so in knowing Christ, we have learned Christ in a more intimate way than just being aware about the facts about Him. There are many people who know Jesus, facts about Jesus, a lot better than some Christians do. Intellectually, I speak. But a true Christian knows Him. In a very personal, intimate way. John 17, 3. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So I ask all of us here this morning, do you know Christ? Don't, not, don't, not do you know about Him. Do you know Him? Do you actually know Him? How is it that we came to know Christ? Through the hearing of the gospel. Notice what Paul says. He says in chapter 4. 
he says, you have not, this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him. Now, Paul ministered, though, for a long time. He knew they'd heard the gospel. He knew many of them were truly converted believers. But there's a lot of time that's passed. New people come in. You have a lot, a lot of different people in the church. But notice that there's this aspect of hearing about him. What did the Ephesians and every other believer hear about Christ when they came to know him that would in turn affect how their life has changed? Here's what they heard. They heard of their sinfulness and Christ's sinlessness. They heard of the judgment that they're worthy of and the judgment Christ bore for them. They heard of their wicked life before a holy God and Christ's holy life. Live for them. They heard of only Christ being able to make them new, that in Him they are a new creature, a new creation. See, the very essence of the gospel is the perfect Son of God saving sinners by His blood to make them new. New. He saves them from sin, their depravity, their damnation. He does what they could not do for themselves. He calls them out of darkness into light. He gives sight to their blindness. He removes their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh so that they have life. They know Him. How glorious is it that Christ gives His people a new nature, freeing them from the old. So understand that learning Jesus firstly includes coming to know the Jesus they heard about. But not only, there's more than just that to this, this equation, this transition. Not only does a true Christian know Jesus personally, a true Christian listens to Jesus personally. They hear Him. Hear Him. Notice what He says to the Ephesians, that they've heard Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in, Christ, is in Jesus. As a Christian, you not only have come to know the Savior, you also are taught in the Savior as He is the truth for your life. You're taught of Him. What did Jesus say? John 10, 27, My sheep hear what? My voice. And I know them and they follow me. Well, how do the sheep of Christ hear the shepherd's voice? Through the word of the living God. Now, don't go down the road and just be waiting for Jesus to audibly speak to you. It ain't going to happen. He speaks to us through the word of the living God. The spirit of God working hand in hand with the word of the living God. You see, through the word of God entering their ears and applied to their minds by the spirit, they hear him, are instructed of him, and learn of him. Now understand, this does not happen to everyone. Not everyone hears in this way to which it affects the mind and heart and will. It doesn't happen to everyone. As we see with the unregenerate pagans plunging themselves further into sin, the truth is given and given and given, but it's going in one ear at the other. It is not being heard. His people have ears to hear His voice. Jesus often said this throughout His teachings. Mark 4.23 If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. There are a lot of ears that did hear, a lot of ears that didn't hear. The Hebrews writer wrote in a similar fashion, quoting the Old Testament, Hebrews 3, 7 and 8, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. If you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. 
So, so you see that, that God's people do have ears to hear and know what God expects, and they hear this through the word of the living God. Charles Hodge commenting says this, To hear the voice of God or of Christ, therefore, is not merely to perceive with the outward ear, but to receive with the understanding and the heart. So the point here Paul is making as he transitions from the old life to the new life is that if they have learned Christ, the way, the way of life they have learned, it is not the way of life of the Gentiles, the godless cults around them. So understand, if your learning of Jesus has led you to think living in sin is permissible, you're not learning the true Jesus. Believe it or not, there are a lot of people in this world who think that I can know Jesus, profess Jesus, and go on my very way and just live however I want to live. I don't really have to worry about my sins, my life. If that's the way you think, you're in desperate need of some deep examination. Paul said this in Romans 6, 1 through 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is what the gospel does. It doesn't just give us eternal life. It changes our life. It changes our life here in this world as we live. And friend, here's the point is that we forsake the old life. We no longer live that way. We are God's peculiar people, a light to the world of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. John Calvin comments also saying this, He who lives life, he whose life differs not, from that of unbelievers, has learned nothing of Christ. For the knowledge of Christ cannot be separated from the mortification of the flesh. So the cause of a changed life is plain. It is Christ alone. He must be personally known in our hearts. We are to listen to Him in our lives. And this leads Paul, to, this leads Paul into the next section here, showing us what exactly it is that we learn from Him. What do we learn from Christ? Notice number three, the conduct for the new life. The conduct for the new life. And it's very simple. Very simple. Two very simple things. Christians must put off the old self. Christians must put off the old self. Look at verse 22. Here's what he's continuing to say. He says, this is what you've learned. To put off your old Self. Now, what is this old self? It is the thinking and behaving of the old unconverted life that he just described as the Gentiles. Scripture calls it the flesh and its works. He describes what he's talking about as the old self. Notice what he says, which belongs to your former manner of life. Now, what was that manner of life? It's all that he described. Now, wasn't our old life, our old self removed completely? Haven't we been changed into a new creation? Yes, we have. Remember what Paul wrote to the Romans. Romans 6 and verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So based on that truth, we see that our old self has in one sense already been put away. That we've been made into a new self. We are a new creation. We are a new person in Christ. He has transformed our hearts and given us spiritual life. We're not our old self anymore. 
What then is Paul getting at by telling us to put off your old self if the old self is already put off by means of the cross? Here's the truth for every Christian as we look at living in this world. Though we have been made new in Christ, we still dwell in a body that comes from Adam. Now, positionally, you're not in Adam anymore once you're in Christ. But the body we're in still is. It's called our flesh. You see, Christ has freed me spiritually from being in Adam. But the influences of the flesh, they still hang around. They're pests. They pester the Christian till he dies. Paul wrote of himself saying this in Romans 7, 22 and 23. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Christian, couldn't we all identify with that to a degree? Oh, how we love Jesus, but how many times have we done that which displeases Jesus? Oh, how we love His Word, but how many times have we failed in following it? You see, Paul describes the influences of our old self as corrupt through deceitful desires. Friends, we who are Christians, we know our own flesh. We know when it's rearing its ugly face. We are at war with it. You see, the influence of our fallen flesh will hang around for a long time, but not forever. Now, here's what I look forward to. There's coming a resurrection day when this old flesh of Joseph's gone. Gone forever. Not only has my internally, my soul been made new, my heart, my mind, but my body also will be made new. Made new. So, but but understand, until that day, while I live this life, the call of the Christian is this, the practical living... Put off your old self. Put off your old self. Here's the reality, Christian. A changed nature demands a changed behavior. We are to live in a manner that reflects the new nature we have in Christ. So by saying put off, Paul's using imagery, a metaphor really of language that pictures removing a dirty garment, clothes. You know, whenever our children have been playing outside, Julie and David, they go out there, they love to dig in the dirt. And when kids dig in the dirt and they come inside, they don't look the same as they when they went outside, do they? No. Dirt all over their clothes. They come in the house filthy. You can't stay in those clothes. And what is our first initial words as they come into the house? Go change your clothes. <laughs> go take off those filthy, dirty clothes. And so the Christian is to live in a manner in which they are putting off the old nature. They're fighting it. They're repenting of it. They're turning away from it. You see, just because we still live in the influence of the flesh with that influence and we're at war with it, that does not mean we just get to give into it. That means we just are okay with it. Friend, if you're born again, your daily duty is to be putting sin to death in your life by resisting it, fleeing from it. When you fail in it, by repenting 
of it. Your life is a lifestyle of repentance. John Owen rightly said, he's famous for saying this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And that's exactly true. Sin does nothing but bring misery to the life of the Christian. Many in this world look at the lifestyle of the unconverted and think they've got such a prosperous and pleasurable life. Even Christians may be deceived into thinking it'd be easier just to live however I please. Give up on this war. Why would you look at the world around us filled with corruption and think that you would be happy living that way? Do you remember what the end result is for that kind of a lifestyle? What's the end result for all of these people that are trying to appeal and bring us into that sort of lifestyle? Here's the result. Romans 6.21 But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? What's the end of those things? What's the result of those things? The result of those things is death. Death. Now, the world may appear to be happy and wealthy and prosperous, but understand that if they do not know Christ in their lifetime, they're on the, they're on the fast road to hell. There's nothing to envy in that. Absolutely nothing. We have to remember what we've been rescued from and who we are to live for. It is Christ alone. Notice with me, letter B, here's the second other side of this coin. Christians must put off the old self but then Christians must put on the new self. Put on the new self. Now notice that Paul describes kind of how this happens. Paul continues in verse 23. I'm almost done, I promise. Verse 23 says, And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now, what did we mention earlier? All that we are in our life flows from how we what? Think. From our minds. How we think determines how we behave. The danger for the Christian is to allow the godless world around us to influence our minds in such a way that we do not live out what Christ has called us to live out. Paul warned the Romans in Romans 12 too, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? Mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So understand that our minds must be constantly renewed in spiritual truth and application. Say, well, preacher, how does that happen? How can I renew my minds to where it needs to be? Tell you a real, real complex, hard answer. It's about as hard as calculus if you ever took that class. Here's the answer. How can you renew your mind? The Word of God. The Word of God. One of the great detriments to Christianity today is a neglect of the Scriptures. You say, oh, I get it on Sunday. That is not enough for you. You need it day in and day out. You must have the Word of God. You see, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to cultivate and consecrate the believer in his life. The psalmist who loved the Word of God in Psalm 119.11 said, I have stored up your Word in my heart. Why does he do that? That I might not sin against you. Friend, the further you are from the Word of God, the weaker you will be. We cannot expect to live rightly without our minds being renewed in the Scriptures and Spirit. The only way you do that is to be in the Word of God. 
R.C. Sproul comments and says the word of God can be in the mind without being in the heart, but it cannot be in the heart without first being in the mind. So if you want your heart to be affected, get in the scriptures. It's got to go into your mind. And as we saturate our minds with the word of God, guess what? Our thinking will be in the right place. Our life will be in the right place, going down the path that Christ wants us to go. As Paul said to the Colossians, set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. And with this renewing of the mind, Paul says in verse 24, what does he tell them to do? To put on the new self. This is the opposite side of taking the old self off. So when we tell our kids to go take off those dirty clothes, guess what? We don't want them to run around naked the rest of the day. What are they doing? Putting on fresh, clean clothes. Put on a replacement clothes. And so here's where we find where our clothing, we, we're to put on or live out what is clean and pure and holy and righteous in our life. We see this imagery in several places from Paul. He tends to like this. Very quickly, Romans 13, 12. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. See that language? He says in that same passage, Romans 13, 14, this one's good. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's practical application for you. To the Colossians, he says, Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So the application of putting on the new self, understand, Christian, it is not optional for you. You must do it. You must do it. And how does Paul describe this new self that we must put on? Notice what he says about it. He says that this new self is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, the new self for the Christian is to be a reflection of the new nature that they've been given in Christ. This is an eternal change that he has wrought in our hearts, but there is a practical application to the believer here to live out and manifest Christ in us. One of the best texts that I think summarizes this picture, and I'm closing with this text, I promise. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. We're really familiar with this, but this just is, is a great poetic summary. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is where? In the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. You know what meditation is? That's the practice of the mind, renewing the mind. And what's the result of this? Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That's the picture of a Christian life who is abstinent from the world, but his appetite is for the Lord. So Christian, what does your life look like this morning? Is your life distinguishable from the godless world around us? Are you making it your daily practice to put off the old influences of the flesh and to put on the new influences of the Spirit? I challenge us all 
to seek and commit to living out the new life in Christ that he has given us. And as we do that, we will bring him great glory and be the light that he's called us to be.